Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Iconocast here with the Southeastern Louisiana University English Department's uh, graduate colloquium. Um, today, our guest is uh, a critic, a translator, um, and we encountered her work with Maurice Condé's The Bell Creole um, this past semester. Um, and our, what is it? Just women's Caribbean writing as a whole right yes, now. Yes, yeah. women and Caribbean literature. And uh, there was a lot of profound questions that we came upon reviewing her work and this translation. And uh, we thought it great to invite her. Um, so without further ado, it is my honor to introduce Miss Nicole Simic. How are you doing, Nicole? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Great. How's the weather in Washington? <laughs> uh, we're hanging in there. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's getting a little bit warmer. <laughs> right. Well, uh, today, me and Kendall, we just have a few questions. We'll talk through it. No rush, taking our time. Uh, I saw you had a cup of, is it coffee or water? We have uh, Just water for now. Water, same for <laughs> us. We don't want to get too excited. <laughs> so the first question, uh, Nicole, is what led you to personally explore French Caribbean literature and the philosophies and theories of those peoples? Yeah, well, partly chance. I think um, I started reading literature in French, more generally in Francophone literatures when I was an undergrad in college, kind of early in my undergrad experience. And I had always been fascinated with language. And I, at that point in my life, I was also really fascinated with questions of social norms and power. And when I started reading French literature and Francophone literature, it was right at that moment where I was just starting to develop, I think, a vocabulary for thinking about gender for thinking about race and questions of power. So that kind of being able to articulate um, what was bothering me about social norms that I hadn't been able to put a finger on as a, as a younger person, that kind of coincided with reading French literature and Francophone literature. And um, uh, so that, that really pulled me in, I think, as an interest of these literatures, particularly Caribbean literature, which is so deeply focused on language as um, both as a medium of political control, but also as this enormous source of creativity, yeah. resistance, um, ways of thinking. So that really pulled me in. And I just, I had an opportunity to take some classes as a student in um, different areas of Francophone literature and one on Marius Condé and Ousmane Sambène in particular, a comparative class that, that got me really hooked. And that was, that was the the beginning and the end of my story. I think I've stuck with it ever since. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that is really awesome. So that actually kind of leads us to our next question. Uh, since you did bring up language and the study of uh, language, um, do you find that there is a distinct giveaway in someone's language that shows that they are French Caribbean outside of using Creole? Um, I don't know if there's a distinct giveaway. I think there are some shared phrases and cadences, but um, I don't know that I could put my finger on something very rigid, like a category. So now, is that I, applied to writing as well? Do you think that uh, French Caribbean writers, they have a, like you were saying, do they use idioms or rhythms or the way they speak? Because we ask that because mm -hmm. when, we, when we see Southern literature or Irish literature, some people believe that you can see their, you know, their regionalism before There's you even tell. see the themes or the yeah. settings. Yeah. Is there yeah, a yeah. tell for that? Um, I don't think so. I don't think, um, well, I, I would say, I guess, 
when I think about Caribbean literature and different authors, I think kind of like a, a metaphor that comes to mind is that of a constellation. So you can kind of see a pattern or, or a, a, a unit and affinities between the different stars that make up that constellation. You could say, yeah, I recognize that, that that is Caribbean literature. But when you get up closer, you start to see the individuality of each star and then um, like the distances or differences between them and, and vice versa. When you move away, you start seeing affinities between um, this constellation and others and the kind of contours of it may, may fade or become yeah, less. That is a beautiful way to describe it, actually. It provides such a vivid idea (laughs) of what you're talking about. That was great, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting what you said, because I know that Confiant will say, and a lot of the Creolite movement, that language is the, I'll say it bears most of the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess everything that we've researched implies they're talking about the, the preservation of the Creole language. But I didn't know, we haven't known if, the way they engage French, which is, would be the mother language or partially a parent language, if it would be different. But you're saying that mm-hmm. m- maybe not so much, no? Well, I, th- I think yes and no. I think okay. there's, it's hard. I think the, you can see kind of patterns or affinities and cadences, like I said, and, and particular use of terms or structures that are modeled on Creole grammar. Um, but it's hard to draw a line, I guess, between, you know, this is French Caribbean and this is not. Um, mm-hmm. And then thinking about who belongs to that you know, who, who gets to claim affinity <laughs> with, with the French Caribbean, um, what happens to people in diaspora or second generation um, uh, Caribbeans, their Antillians who are born in France, for example, or in London in the British context of, you know, par- their parents have, have moved away from the islands themselves, but they still feel uh, kind of an identification with the culture and with ways of speaking, ways of, of thinking the world, seeing the world through the language. So, yeah, well, going off of that, um, I mean, there are plenty of French Caribbean writers or Antillian writers, as we'll be more specific. Um, And like you said, you did that comparative class and a lot of the, you know, journal publications you've had, you certainly don't just concentrate on her. But there does seem to be, um, you do seem to gravitate toward Condé a little bit more. Um, Can you tell us why? Mm-hmm. Condé is such a big figure for you. Yeah, I do. I do have a little bit of an obsession with Condé. I do find myself coming back to her work. I think in part it's because I, I tend to read that way generally. I really love rereading. Um, so I know some people don't like to reread. They 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 like the freshness of newness of of new authors, and um, and I certainly enjoy that too. But I I do tend to. I really love to reread and linger over kind of phrases and narrative structures and re-experiencing and thinking about how something comes together. So I think that's my, my general tendency, but I really love um, with Conde, I really love her range, the, just the, the, the different topics that she takes on and how she, her inventiveness, um, she's, she's constantly trying out new structures, taking on new contemporary issues. At the same time, she does have a, a distinctive voice. And I think it was maybe because I've been reading her for so long. I do, uh, you know, thinking about your earlier question, <laughs> I do content uh, to hear Conde's voice when I pick up one of her books. And part of that voice, I think, is her, her really ironic wit. Um, so there's kind of a dry, biting humor. And that, that has always really appealed to me, I think. And, and I think what I like about it too is that, 
I mean, it's impossible to take everything in her work seriously. There's always a kind of ironic humor that is daring you to not to read too much into what she's saying or to take a clear lesson away from it. But at the same time, it's impossible um, not to just write write what she's saying off as as fun, as just jest. There's a seriousness in her playfulness and a playfulness in her seriousness that I think um, really keeps me engaged and 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 keeps that kind of interpretive hunger to use a metaphor that I talk about a lot going so yeah 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 no it's good to hear that because mm-hmm. us reading her she's challenging because it's like uh just a you don't know where you're being taken mm-hmm. when you're it's it's very unpredictable and it's analogous to some things we read and there's a little when we read her the region she speaks of in Louisiana, there's a, an analogy there as well in the culture and the history, the way peoples were treated. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. it's good to hear that because we, we were wondering, is it just because she's such, she lies in such juxtaposition to the rest of French Caribbean literature? Mm-hmm. You know, she's very unique and even sometimes there's conflict. <laughs> she kind of yeah. embraces the conflict, but that's really cool to hear that it resonates with you. Mm-hmm. Some other way, cool. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna move on to uh, actually your translation work. Um, mm-hmm. Specifically, what uh, made us kind of aware of you was reading the Bell Creole, obviously, and your translation work with that. So to start off with that, uh, what circumstances led you to translate La Belle Creole? Because obviously Maurice uh, Conde is very selective um, mm-hmm. about her translators. <laughs> her translator. Yeah, so what led you to translate that? Yeah, well, um, I'd always been drawn to the, I, this novel came out when I was in grad school, I think. So I read it when it first came out and I was really taken with it, um, fascinated by how it it resonated and also departed from her earlier book, Crossing the Mangrove, which um, you might be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it reworks this narrative framework of, of a, a 24 hour period in which the story unfolds. And it also features many different voices. So I got fascinated by the book really early on. Um, I got my job here at Whitman College and I, I teach courses in French most of the time, a lot of the time. So I taught the novel in French a few times, but I also have the opportunity to teach in English in the race and ethnic studies program and the gender studies program. So um, I started to wonder when the English version would come out so that I could use it <laughs> in my classes in particular, mm-hmm. because I think that the themes really, um, even though the book is now 20 years old, it still feels very contemporary and it's, um, um, the themes that she takes up there uh, still resonate and still have that ability to prompt kind of conversation. So um, it happened, I think it was in fall of 2017. I was on sabbatical. I was coming off of a stint as a, uh, in, in, in like a, a faculty governance administrative <laughs> kind of period in my work. So I was really hungering for some creative outlets. And um, it just, it occurred to me that I should contact Maurice and, and Richard and ask if if he had any plans to translate the book. And it happened that he didn't. It had been sitting untranslated. So I I said I would be interested in doing it if 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 that would be okay with them. And and they were supportive of the idea of of, of seeing if I could find an editor and and kind of bringing it um, to to English. So I was I got very excited and, <laughs> and then just jumped yeah. into the project yeah. from there. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Well, that is awesome because uh, we did read your uh, interview with her and we did see the part where she talked about um, translators. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> them, so. <laughs> we just wanted to see. It's a, like, it's a very high bar. So yes, I hope I've, I hope I, I can only hope I've done it justice. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, so uh, next, we were wondering, uh, how was your experience translating her work? Uh, what were some obstacles that you faced or some parts that you really appreciated that maybe you didn't expect to appreciate? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, I'll, first I'll just say I really love the work. I, um, it, it was incredibly engaging, I think, to the point where I would, the time would pass, I would forget to eat. <laughs> I would be so absorbed in, in, in the work. Um, so I think um, some of the challenges, so this was my, my first time taking on a really large literary translation um, project. So uh, I think um, in my eagerness and in, my, in, in be, being newer to that kind of work, um, I think I made some inevitable kind of trial and error mistakes along the way. Um, I think linked to that, uh, the main obstacle was getting distance on what I was producing. I think because I had, I had written on this text before in my, my work as a critic, um, I was on the one hand intimately familiar with it, but um, you need a different kind of familiarity with the work when you're working as a translator, looking at sentence level structure, but also how that sentence level structure relates to the bigger picture. So finding, finding time to put the translation aside, let it rest and get some critical distance on it. I found that to be the, the hardest part of the process mm-hmm. actually. Um, so I was really fortunate to have um, really helpful colleagues and my partner and even family members who were willing to read some drafts and give their perspective from you know different readers who are in very different positions who have different levels of familiarity with Kondé. Mm-hmm. So that was helpful too, getting other eyes on the process. Yeah, cool. Um, that leads us nicely to this question that we had discussed. Uh, in his preface to uh, Crossing the Mangrove, Phil uh, Cox, mm-hmm. he talks about that voice, um, mm-hmm. which, first of all, to our viewers who are only Anglophone, which is probably all of them, uh, <laughs> uh, her translation of the Bel Creole uh, just released in this past June, correct? So, or was it? Uh, am I am I wrong? Let's see. The time all blurs together. Uh, like the, I think it was the, the April May. Yes, yeah, April May. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. 2020 was. Did it exist? Did we not just skip <laughs> exactly? Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. So we're like in in a in a way this first year first wave to be you know uh, engaging that text mm-hmm. in English, and uh, it's fascinating to us as we read it how poetic at points it is, which mm-hmm. must be challenging cross language but back to philcox to the people that do not know mr richard philcox is uh maurice conde's husband and he has uh translated you would say probably most of her popular works for mm-hmm. certain um to english so if you're an anglophone who has engaged miss uh, conde's work it's been through the conduit of richard philcox yeah. um so the question to you is as he said uh he really used um, Virginia Woolf's voice. Um, and we know that from your interviews with her that she, Condé is a big fan of Woolf. So um, our question to you is, did you use a similar guy to render that? And what Phil, Phil Cox calls the sound and conviction of Condé. What was your guide for translating? Yeah, I didn't use a, a single 
author texts like he did, but I had read his work previously. So I had read and taught his translation of Crossing the Mangrove of um, Hera Mackinon, Marie's Conde's first novel, and also Story of the Cannibal Woman. So I think, um, I, and I had done a lot of that work before I knew I would be taking on this translation project. So I think his those examples of his previous kind of renderings of her voice inevitably (laughs) worked their way into my thinking. It's hard in hindsight to pull out the different influences. And I was thinking a lot about what he said about um, Virginia Woolf and and the the kind of rhythm of Condé's sentences when I was working on the Belle Creole, because I think another one of the challenges um, with her voice is, is, is the rhythm and the length. She writes very long sentences. And in this particular case, um, it's set up as a kind of murder mystery, even though some of the elements, <laughs> no, I won't, I won't give any spoilers here, but <laughs> some of the elements be- are really clear what, what has happened at the beginning of the novel. Um, but I found that a lot of the sentences were kind of structured in the same way. So important information would come at the end of the sentence. And that's that syntax isn't always uh, you can't always be directly reproduced in English. So thinking about ways to maintain the effect of, of the, of the kind of building of suspense as you're waiting to find out what happens right. on the level of the sentence. That was a really fascinating challenge and and interesting for me to think about um, as I was working. So mm-hmm. it was, I guess I was thinking of it from a both from a question of rhythm and 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 how the reader would be experiencing this in English, just the sound and the pacing, but also from an, a kind of an epistemological angle too. Is like how is the knowledge of what's unfolding being, how is that linked to the sentence structure itself? So yeah, the the, the sentence length and the way that images are given it reminds like it reminded me of Faulkner or George Washington mm-hmm. Cable, where it's like, I mean there. I, we, I promised Kendall that I wasn't going to read from the book because there's this <laughs> the uh, description of, of uh, the main character as a, a comma on the waves. That yes, that's like, one of my favorite. It's, it's a great, but that sentence is like half a page long. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant that writing, but to think how you translated that, mm-hmm. it's to, I am monolingual. Or, you know, we can order at a restaurant. Yes. Are you monolingual? Yes, too? I'm also monolingual. <laughs> See how you're juggling that on a artistic level. Mm, it's, yeah. We, we, we need to dig deeper for certain, but right. yeah. Yeah. And just, I think too, in this, the, the narrative voice slips in and out of other characters' voices so often. And that was another kind of challenge and, and also a, a pleasure working on thinking about, you know, so the narrative perspective is the narrator is kind of taking on this other character's right. kind of viewpoint and the way they speak and the register that they use. So uh, there, there's all sorts of mixes of register and, and Condé in, in the French, it moves in and out of kind of a standard French or regional Guadalupean French and Creole, different, different forms of Creole, even Creole that's been transliterated into French spelling and Creole that's in Creole spelling. So trying to, to reproduce those kinds of nuanced distinctions was a was um a challenge but also a fun challenge to think you know how how would this sound (laughs) in English how 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 did how do you capture that voice yeah exactly and that actually did uh kind of answer the next question that we had prepared um which was essentially 
uh, what do you prioritize when translating? Because at, we know, and we have taken many courses on um, translating, or at least talking about the effects of translating on a text, mm -hmm. and how it can be very difficult to juggle like preserving the author's narrative voice, while also making it fit for the culture that you're writing towards and you're aiming yeah, your work yeah. towards. And yeah. I think you answered that question already, basically, <laughs> on like trying to get all of that to weave together. Yeah, which sounds well, very difficult. And I think thinking about, I mean, Kunde is even her English speaking audience is is really diverse. So um, thinking about how the English will resonate with with um, and so Caribbean Englishes, American Englishes, British Englishes, which the question of which English is always um, uh, it's it's difficult to navigate. <laughs> let's say so. Right. Yeah. Um, well, real quick, we have a, a student submitted a question. We try to field them as they go. Yeah. Sure. We don't want them to get impatient with us doing all the talking, you know. So, uh, this is from Sarah. Sarah wanted to know uh, what writer or book would you suggest to someone as a starting point uh, interested in exploring French Caribbean literature? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So, thank you. Um, it's hard to pick just one. I think um, one that comes to mind, though, is. Um, Patrick Chamoiseau's Salubo Magnificent. The English translation of that is, so the French is called Salubo Magnifique and the English translation is Salubo Magnificent. And um, the English translation is fabulous. So Rose Miriam Rejoui and um, Val Vinokurov have done a, a, a really amazing kind of rendering of, of that book. Um, so I think, I mean, that book, that book is a book about language and it's about, you know, what does it mean to be um, Martinican or French Caribbean, and what has that meant over time? So I think that uh, uh, that book is a really good uh, kind of first glimpse, and it, it's it's fun and it's challenging in a fun way <laughs> too. Um, so I I like to recommend that one, and and I like to recommend reading that one alongside Crossing Marius Condé's Crossing the Mangrove. Actually, they they came out around the same time in the late '80s, and there are some really fascinating affinities, but also they're, they're really different books in, the, in terms of their style and voice. But um, so kind of reading those in tandem gives you kind of, I would say two entry points that way you're, you're getting a glimpse of the diversity of, of, or just even a little glimpse of the diversity of French Caribbean writing. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that answer. Um, so our next question for you is, uh, did you find that your role as a critic uh, intersected with any with your role as a translator? And if so, where? And if not, just mm -hmm. expand upon the separation that you went through. Yeah. Um, I think where it mostly impacted my work was thinking about, well, thinking about Conde's audience as being made up of both critics, but also readers who aren't necessarily literary critics or they're not, they're, they're not trained in literary criticism. Because so I think the different publics come to her work with, with different needs and different expectations based on their previous familiarity with her work. So as a critic, I found myself wanting to stay very close to the original. Um, I think I mentioned the, the syntax before, and, and especially in the beginning when I was doing some early drafts, I found myself wanting to stick, uh, to be able to maintain the structures and the vocabulary of the original for an audience that might be working in both languages or who who takes a literary historical or literary critical interest in how that original is constructed. But um, a translator has to think too about uh, readability 
and more generally, you know, what kinds of transpositions or modifications are actually needed to to um, to capture the the spirit or the thrust of a work. Um, sometimes sticking too close to the original doesn't actually do that. It, it doesn't. It doesn't create the same effect. Mm -hmm. So I think that thinking about those questions, that's where I would see um, myself need kind of putting on a different hat and, and changing perspective um, compared to where I, I normally sit as a, as a literary critic. Oh, great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we're going to dig a little into that criticism now, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, will try to help us help us keep it light because we have deep, <laughs> sure. deep questions, but our <laughs> audience, they're not all reading it. So we'll try to give it to them, uh, you know, the the appetizer, not the, mm -hmm. dish. so, uh, <laughs> so, um, like we were talking about this conflict that is Conde mm -hmm. with the, uh, other writers from her area and her mm -hmm. language and academia. Um, can you explain to us if there is, cause the way we interpret it is mm -hmm. she does kind of, uh, not neatly, she does not neatly fit into French Caribbean literature or literary post-colonialism in the most popular views of either. Um, can you explain to us where she does align or doesn't align within those ideas in your opinion? Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned conflict and maybe we could start there and kind of give some more details about the kinds of, of debates that, that she participates in or that others put her in. So um, I think I, I think maybe one you're referring to are the the Creolist authors um, yeah. mm -hmm. with Confiant and so Raphael Confiant and Patrick Chamoiseau. Um, <clears throat> so I think uh, especially early on when the the Creolist writers were putting out their manifestos and and kind of taking a, a, a position on Creole, they were coming to the question from the perspective of having been um, Creole speakers, that was their native language, that's what they spoke at home, and it was a language that was always repressed. You weren't allowed to speak it at school, you were punished for speaking it at school, it wasn't valued generally in France. Um, it was viewed kind of as a, an inferior dialect that needed to be kind of done away with. So whereas Creole in fact is a language with a rich history, it's 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 um, it's complex. It's it's capable of doing much more, and it is it is a it is people's native language. It's it's what's close to their heart. It's what they speak, and so the Creolist um, took a, a pretty militant position on on revaluing Creole and building it back up, doing the work to expand a language to give it back its dignity, and. Um, and I think Conde, I mean, she did not, she, her family didn't speak Creole at home. Um, they were raised more in that more dominant French, not, I mean, she doesn't espouse that ideology anymore, but um, her, her family, she was, she was raised to learn to speak French. She could understand a little bit of Creole, but French is her native language and French is, is the main language that she works with, although she also works a little bit with Creole too. So, um, where her concern came in was the idea that you must speak in Creole in order to be an authentic French Caribbean. So um, I think these these debates get very personal about what's the best way to to give value back to a language. At what point does that become a, a kind of a dictate 
um, a mandate that you must speak Creole or you're not really Martinican or you're not really Guadalupean or you're, or you're participating in the dominant culture and in the, the suppression of Creole. So um, those language debates get very heated because there's a lot at stake. Um, so I think, I mean, that was one source of, of conflict is what, what language should a writer write in? And Conde has always held the position that you, you, a writer should not be forced to write in a particular language that, and in, in any case, she, she, she's very famous for um, saying, you know, I don't write in French, I don't write in Creole, I write in Maris Conde. So every writer <laughs> changes the language, they reinvent it. So um, you, you, you don't just, um, reproduce kind of an existing structure you're working with it you're recreating as you speak and that's that's part of the goal of writing and i think that that i mean her trajectory too she had left guadalupe when she was 16 to finish her studies in france and spent a long time in west africa after um, she with her her first marriage her children were born in africa and um, so she spent a lot of time living elsewhere moving around the globe and thinking about um, some of the problems that come with, with kind of rigid notions of identity or nationalism. So her perspective is someone who's been an outsider in many different places and has, has navigated those different cultures. So um, she's always been very wary of, of trying to put borders around an identity or um, claim a, a, a rigid notion of authenticity that, that leaves others out. And so the Creolists though, from their perspective is, you know, we're, the people who are, who are at home, who aren't nomads, who aren't moving around, um, what does their identity mean to them? And how, how do you maintain that dignity and that creativity um, when there still is a power dynamic um, that, that, that can't just be ignored where French is still the dominant language. It's the language of schooling for the most part. So how, how do you navigate that at the same time? Mm-hmm. So um, I, that's, that's where my, my first thoughts go. <laughs> I <Yeah>. think uh, <laughs> other, other kinds of, of categories that she's been, she's tried to, to resist is the notion that a writer should give lessons. And I think um, when she talks about the term post-colonial um, or French Caribbean, oftentimes the expectation is that a post-colonial writer is going to be um, giving you a political message and a lesson um, that you can come away with in order to, to, to bring about some political program. And she's always been very suspicious of using literature to, to give kind of single <laughs> clear lessons. She much prefers kind of raising questions, stirring the pot, um, creating ambiguity. So, yeah. That was deep, but I think- I hope I didn't go on too long. Very informative. <laughs> no, no, I was just saying, no, I think that was <laughs> no, perfect. I think that was perfect. I, yeah. I really do. Uh, yeah. So um, we're actually going to go just a little bit more into uh, Maurice Conde and her feelings on Creole, uh, even mm-hmm. though you did already touch on the fact that there is a lot of discourse, of course, uh, surrounding Creole and its usage. Um, obviously, we are from Louisiana and we do mm-hmm. have, you know, a population that does speak Creole um, and a lot of us are Cajun. So we do have that kind of um, influence around us. Yeah. I know Tyler and I are bo- both born and raised here, so yeah. <laughs> we do understand um, 
but kind of our question is, how do you see the conceptualization of Creole as a language, as people, as theory being treated in Condé's work and the works of her contemporaries? Because of course, of course, to us Louisianians, we do have some sort of concept of Creole ourselves, Mm -hmm. but can you also explain how the Caribbean idea of Creole may be different or similar to our idea of Creole? Yeah. And um, so I'll talk a little bit about that, but I would also love to hear more about like what Creole means in Louisiana from your perspective (laughs) (laughs) too. Um, So I think, I mean, Conde in many of her works, I mean, she, she will incorporate the language in, and we see this in the Belle Creole, for example. Um, So, I mean, she sees it as part of reality that needs to be acknowledged um, it's part of the, the cultural landscape. It's, it's part of people's horizons. It's, it's the language that they use. So she wants to account for that, I think, in, in her writing about the Caribbean. Um, I think um, to go back to these previous debates, I think Edouard Glissant's notion of creolization is helpful here. So thinking about what does creole mean or what does creoleness mean? Uh, is creoleness a thing, creolite, as, the, uh, as, the, as some of these creolist writers would say in, in their early writings? Is creolite an identity, creoleness, an identity that you can define that has certain characteristics that you can put a finger on um, to get back to some of our, it's reminding me of some of the earlier discussion we were having about French Caribbean-ness, right? Mm-hmm. So is it, is it an identity, a cultural identity, or is creoleness is creolization what what is important, which is kind of a process of mixing and an openness to kind of multiple cultural influences. So is creolization kind of a state of mind, an attitude towards mixing, a way of life? Um, Or is it linked to like particular foods, particular words, um, you know, a particular identity? So I I think that's on the conceptual level, I think that's, um, I would see, I mean, wanting to account for how people understand their identity, but also I think she leans more towards the notion of creolization as something to, to, to celebrate a kind of openness to mixing and inventiveness. Um, so, but in terms of Louisiana, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts because I think too, what, what Creole means depends on, you know, who are the others in your constellation that you're mm-hmm. kind of that, that are influencing your definition because these definitions all, always happen in relation, right? So if, if right. Creole in, in Martinique and Guadeloupe, you have France and the, the mm-hmm. state of France and the, the long history of the French language being put on a pillar as, as the language of expression and thought and philosophy, right? right. right. Whereas Louisiana, I mean, you have a, a history of, of a relationship right. to French colonization, but also right. the US, right? As, of course, yeah. Um, so for us, I know per, uh, in particular, my family, like I said, is Cajun. Mm-hmm. My grandma grew up speaking Cajun French. Um, unfortunately, I never got to learn from her because yeah. uh, it was seen as something bad. So mm-hmm. in schools, they kind of stopped allowing them to speak Cajun French, just as you mentioned earlier, they yeah, would do yeah. in other areas. Um, and I know that there is a lot of conflation between the ideas of Cajun and Creole here. You know, people tend to hear one and think of the other. There isn't much separation there. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyler, do you have any thoughts on it? Um, I know that for me, it was until engaging the Creolist, which made me think of a concept of hybridity in general. Mm-hmm. It was always language. Even, you know, the Haitian, there are a lot of Haitians in New Orleans. 
mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. speak a Creole. Um, and then there's even English Creole. I've, mm-hmm. I've you know, in Belize, yeah. Yeah. places yeah. like that. So it was language, but I know with Confiant, you were saying, I know he'll talk about uh, <laughs> the, the importance of language because when she was saying it, mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, Creole cooking, yeah. that's like a big mm-hmm. deal down. Like, yes, major. <laughs> we, we didn't even <laughs> think about it, but that mm-hmm. is so it's 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 challenging because louisiana is uh it's diverse right. in, a, in a way there is new orleans mm-hmm. but there are you know rural areas that are very different but right. new orleans itself is very diverse mm-hmm. so yeah um, yeah I, I before engaging these people i would have thought that the creole of louisiana would have been a completely different thing you know just like mm-hmm. like uh george washington cable like i brought up old Creole days there's an implication that he, he might even be alluding to the Creolitist hybridity as a concept mm-hmm. like of just like you're saying when you say Creolization you're talking about just a mixture correct it's not like a specific mixture of any things it's just mixture, right correct? yeah I think I mean some of in Glissant's work and and in, in some of the Creolists too you get the sense that um, I'm forgetting the exact line but um, Creolization is 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 kind of viewed as like the, where the world in general is heading, right? <laughs> the world is moving in, in, in towards Creolization, like about borders get broken down and, and, and cultures get mixed up. Um, that's not to say that there's no stability though. I think, so I think we can think of it as a both and that um, there is still an identity in um, maybe not in a rigid sense, like a, it's a fixed identity that never changes, but we do have, I mean, we, we have our, the foods that we gravitate to and ways of speaking and ways of seeing the world, those things do, there is a, a bit of stability there, even as creolization is happening over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, in your opinion, do you, I, I know, so Creole should no longer, and I guess I'll even take a step further. Mm-hmm. I guess we would have identified Creole as a mixture between a white and a black person, like mm, either specifically mm. a French of somebody with French ancestry and black ancestry that in Louisiana, um, we were talking about it just before you, mm. uh, one of our classmates was saying, that's how they identify. They, I saw a person as a Creole, regardless if they was French mm-hmm. ancestry or anything mm. down here. It's, it's, I would say it's racial. The term mm, Creole mm-hmm. is probably racial. Do you agree? You think? Uh, yeah, I would say it's racial because although Cajun and Creole do have some sort of like mixing happening, I definitely do see uh, people who have maybe more of a French ancestry identifying with Cajun, whereas people with more Black mm-hmm. ancestry do identify with Creole more. Mm-hmm. But there mm-hmm. is still that conflation of culture where we both still have the same foods and yeah, some yeah. of the same dialects, even to an extent. Yeah, and that's a fascinating comparison because uh, with um, Martinique and Guadeloupe, because the history of the word Creole there, I mean, originally Creole referred to white settlers who were born in the colonies. So it was only, it only applied to, to whites um, in the beginning. So as a distinction from whites born in the cent- in the colonial center. Um, so it's only more recently from like mid 20th century and the work of the Creolists that aside from the language, the language has always been called Creole too, um, which was spoken by, by everyone on the plantation, the, you know, the slaves, workers, but also the, the, the plantation owners, the slave owners spoke Creole um, during that period. 
So the language became associated with the term, but um, it's only more recently that Creole has come to be associated with a culture more generally. And, and it's, it's other kind of racial categorizations or color terms still persist alongside the, the idea of Creole as a language and a culture, so. Do you see that as a conflict with some of the sectarianism that we see in academia or like a post-colonial thought? Uh, do you think Creolization is a, in conflict or in tension with that? With um, kind of like trying to maintain turf or yes. categories? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it could be. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about institutionalization and, you know, what we study under what banners, too. So um, we, we use categories like post-colonial or French or French Caribbean to kind of organize our, our constellations, <laughs> to go back to that metaphor, and to organize that, you know, our thoughts about an area. But um, yeah, uh, if, if we were to push the creolization model, we would, we would want to pair works that we might not put together um, and, 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 and read things alongside one another, engage with different forms of cultural production alongside one another that, that may have certain things in common, but that might not be, that might not be, that connection might not be obvious to us if we stick to just the categories as our, our organizing principle. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you for following us down that rabbit hole because we're, <laughs> we're very uncertain. That feels mm -hmm. kind of like free falling because it's it's hard to conceptualize some of those things that have, mm -hmm. you know, a, a cultural meaning to us that right. is probably incorrect, especially in uh, in contrast to the, what we see from the Antillian writers who mm -hmm. have a, a brilliant perspective on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Uh, you got the next one? Yeah, yeah I'll take yeah. the next one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as we were reading your uh, French Caribbean criticism, obviously we came across the uh, theme of, you know, of cannibalism, of course. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> of eating, hunger, and cannibalism. Yeah. So rooted in much of French Caribbean literature, you see that. Um, and uh, criticism pioneered by Suzanne Cesar especially mm -hmm. talks on this. Yeah. Um, so for our viewers who are unaware of what those concepts entail, would you define and expand on what this idea of cannibalism in French uh, Caribbean literature is? Sure. And I think um, to get to Suzanne Cesar's work, thinking a little bit about the, the historical context before um, her essay uh, in when she was working in the 30s and 40s. Um, so hunger, I think, like you said, it's it, the, the, the feeling of hunger and the fear of starvation haunts, I think, popular memory, but also literature in the French Caribbean. Um, so if looking at um, folk tales, for example, trying to find food, trying to, to to use your wits to, to stay fed is, is a constant theme or, or getting punished for eating more than you should. Um, in the folk tales, we see these, these remembrances of slavery of, and of colonization too, um, because even after the days of slavery, people were constantly hungry. Um, so just the theme of hungry, just the being hungry, hunger, it kind of haunts um, cultural memory and it's present as a theme. Um, so, 
beyond though the experience of hunger from the, from the point of view of the hungry, there's also kind of a political and economic um, structure of the colonizer feeding off of the colonies. So I'm in one in a literal sense, you know, since the colonies were producing sugar, rum, and um, kind of food products, we see we see that that, that you know that the colonies themselves producing food for the colonizer for the colonial center. Um, and by extension, the people who are made to labor to do that producing are kind of being consumed. Um, so their bodies are being used up, they're being eaten up in the process of, of cultivating the land for the colonizer. Um, and then in, in a more modern period, we see kind of this moving into a metaphorical realm, the, the Caribbean, the tropics as a kind of exotic location, a spicy, sugary kind of um, enticement. So the Caribbean becomes the, the paradise that you escape to, that's your, 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 your spice in life, right? If you're from the north and cloudy and cold, <laughs> it's where you go to reconnect with, with nature and with um, everything that makes it fun to be alive. So this stereotype persists. So um, Suzanne Césaire working in, it, it, she's from Martinique um, and uh, Martinique was still a colony at the time that she was writing. Um, so, and not just Suzanne Césaire, but also the Brazilian writers working on this kind of literary cannibalism movement. It's a way of kind of turning, flipping that power dynamic and saying, we're going to, we're not just going to produce things for you, imitate you, absorb the models that you give us. We're going to digest them, make them our own and turn them against you, the colonizer in a certain sense. So literary cannibalism is about taking what yeah. these models of being, of relating, of, of your own identity and digesting them, taking them apart, making them your own and, and making them something new. So, um, yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Conde is, I mean, from our examples of reading her, she does that. Mm -hmm. She'll take stuff from the mm -hmm. Western canon mm -hmm. and rewrite it. And uh, it's funny in the interview y'all had with her in 2003, um, I'll mm -hmm. share the book to everybody in a bit, but mm -hmm. she talks about when she's writing, she'll forget to eat and drink sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that went brilliantly with that. It's, it's ironic, like right? Yeah, it's like she's eating something else while she's writing, mm -hmm. which is... Yeah, kind of yeah. mental nourishment. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, we have a question from someone. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. this is from Alec. Um, he wants to know, have you ever visited the French Caribbean islands? And if you have, um, what has your experience been there, especially in relation to the literature? Yeah, you know, I've spent, um, I haven't had the chance to spend extended stay there, but I've been to Martinique and Guadalupe a few times. So um, I've done some work like visiting kind of cultural sites. There's a relatively new museum um, dedicated to slavery, the memory of slavery in Guadalupe mm -hmm. um, that was started just almost around the same time that the Smithsonian Museum on African-American history and culture was inaugurated in Washington. So, um, so when I've, when I've gone, I've, I've, I've been interested in exploring cultural sites in, um, in, in getting a sense. I mean, a lot of Caribbean writers talk about um, the landscape as being kind of a testament to memory. Um, so Derek Walcott has made this comment, but Edouard Glissant too, about how, um, 
how do you go about uncovering your history when um, much of it has been erased or suppressed and, uh, and even like the physical remnants of buildings are, have often been overtaken by vegetation. So, um, so when I visited, I've had that in that kind of goal in mind of getting to know how people live, what, what is their experience of the space? Um, how is tourism functioning too? And seeing, see, seeing how the economic structures are set up. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, <laughs> but, uh, no. but I, I, it's been a privilege to be able to travel to, and, to, and to, to get a sense of the space and see kind of directly what, um, what writers are engaging with when they're talking about space and the land and their relationship to it. Yeah, yeah. Part of me wanted to respond, uh, doesn't sound like a bad extended stay. But no, of course. Isn't that important? Or you were saying that that idealization that we have of those Caribbean mm -hmm. islands in the states, probably around the world, but definitely in the states, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of inescapable. We all have our we come with our our histories and our um, our own desires, and we 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 can't escape that. <laughs> so, which is reminding me of. Um, Jacques Derrida's metaphor that I use a lot in my work, the notion of eating well. So if we think about, you know, if, if we're a consumer, <laughs> we have to eat, as Derrida says. So the question isn't it, do we eat or do we not eat, but how do we eat well? So what kind of relationship are we establishing within the constraints that we, we all live in when we're visiting a place? What kind of responsibilities do we have as, as yeah. people who are not local? Um, how do you engage respectfully? with with a location right yeah that that goes with that uh we read that article in which you gave that prose poetry mm -hmm. um, dichotomy yeah with, uh, what is being ate what is being eaten i should say look at my english it's louisiana mm -hmm. there you go <laughs> louisiana. <laughs> uh, but anyway uh what is that dichotomy of what is being consumed is not mm -hmm. just food even though that is important physical but yeah i mean that yeah. Is it spiritual, intellectual, emotional? It goes on a yeah. wide array there. Yeah. And that um, that manifesto really deals with kind of consumer culture and the way the economy has been skewed towards kind of services and consumption in Martinique and Guadeloupe. Um, and, and that is true too, when you visit, I mean, you can see that directly. You can see what's, uh, what's on, where the products coming from that are available in the grocery stores, what kinds of stores are available, how's the land being used or not used um, to, to produce new things. So, yeah. Cool. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, as we've brought up many times, uh, we read your art, uh, your interview with Maurice Condé, and mm -hmm. there was one uh, answer in particular that she had that we wanted to ask you a little bit about. Um, so, in that interview, you and your colleagues asked her about the terms Francophone, Antillian, Postcolonial, and Woman Writer, and her response was that one needs these labels in order to get into literature departments. <laughs> So essentially, Conde does not really care for these cultural labels, maybe as much as others do, and instead only uses them to really enter into academia. Um, so regarding this literary canon, do you feel like Conde's ideas are true? Are the labels themselves of importance? Are they mostly important when speaking um, about academia? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the labels do have the function that she's she's citing, that it's... Mm -hmm. um, 
in order to be legible, sometimes we have to work through these labels um, in order to have a conversation with the academy. It's one way of, of, of um, entering into a conversation. Um, I would say that these categories, they have value to the extent that they reflect, I th I'm thinking of the US, so the, the term post-colonial or women's studies, mm -hmm. they do have value to the extent that it reflects a, a a deliberate kind of decision on the part of departments to try to decolonize their their programs or to to democratize um, what's considered valuable in the academy. So it does have that history that um, wasn't always the case that post-colonial would get you in the door, right? That uh, um, so seeing post-colonial literature uh, as something that is valuable, that is worth our time, that that needs to be studied, a label can have that that kind of practical value because it helps, it helps put a name on something that maybe hasn't been visible or hasn't, hasn't been named before. Um, so to the extent that they can be used as a kind of shorthand for a more fluid and complex reality, then they, they, they can have a positive impact. But of course, if, um, if they become just rigid categories or if they become ways of, 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 of separating, of um, compartmentalizing. It's like, oh, post-colonial stuff happens over here. We don't have to deal with it outside of that, right? Then, it, then it's less useful. Then it, it, start, it's, it stops having a purpose. And if you, if, and I mean, the question of legibility cuts both ways. <laughs> you know, who's doing the reading? Who's, whose terms um, are, are who's setting the kind of terms of the debate by which you you get recognized as as um, as an interlocutor as somebody that you should be dialoguing with right yeah no that that was a question that she and i had discussed a while because mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. um in, in english departments in general you have to learn the western canon that there's extreme value in that i mean mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. at the same time um, some schools, they seem to be way that way. And then the other one, those that are non-Western canon are kind of, you know, bottlenecked and, but allowed to be validated through those, you know, those terms. Mm -hmm. But like I was telling you, like we were talking, discussing earlier, Condé has this, it's, there's a brilliance there that I, I'll go and say it, I'll probably get beat on my way to the car. I would put on poor with William Faulkner. I really would. Mm -hmm. it, and there's an analogy there as far as the way they write, but what they're writing about. Um, but in Louisiana or the South, Condé won't be put on that pedestal of Faulkner, you mm -hmm. know, maybe mm -hmm. rightfully to some folks, but um, it's just interesting that Condé kind of is aware of that academic shape, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that bring, that raises the question of, of, why works get put in a canon in the first place, right? Um, presumably because they have something valuable to say, they're complex, right? Um, I'm thinking, you know, Teju Cole gave a, a talk at Whitman last week and he said something really, that really struck me that, you know, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I, I value works in the canon, but I don't venerate them. I don't worship them. So uh, recognizing that something has value is very different from 
putting it on a pedestal, right? And, and, and not letting anyone else up on the pedestal with it. <laughs> so um, it, it can be helpful to go back to, you know, why, why are we reading these things in the first place? Um, what is that value? What kinds of questions are they raising? And then that allows us to bring other people into the conversation, right? Right. If we can re remember what the questions were that, <laughs> that, that made us value something in the first place. Yeah, and we pre we appreciate you uh, taking that question because we our department is wonderful. You know, I mean, mm. we engage <laughs> your work through our department, mm -hmm. but we know that there is that there is that you know that cloud looming over United the Academy of the United States, Western Academia in general. Yeah, we wanted to get following that Conde path. We wanted to see what you thought. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, going back to you though, uh, as a translator and a critic. Um, what is lost in reading Conde in English, in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Is anything mm -hmm. gained? Um, well, I do think it's it's better to read in translation than not, because <laughs> you're 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 still you're you're engaging, you're having a conversation, right. um, but you're having that conversation through a filter. So um, I think um, I was thinking about cooking as a kind of metaphor for this too. So when um, when people move to a new country, a new region, they can't find the ingredients that, that they used to use, they'll substitute something else. So what comes out of that is it, it can be very different. It can be very good, <laughs> it can taste great. <laughs> it's not exactly the same. So, um, so something can be gained and something can be lost at the same time. So there can be a kind of both and. So it's, it is kind of, you're, ha you're having a conversation with somebody you might not have been able to talk to before, but you're, you're having that conversation through a filter. Um, and you, you may end up in a very different place if you're working in one, you're having that conversation in one language than you would have if you were in, in engaging with the original, but um, uh, we can't learn all languages. Some of us can learn more than others, but it takes a long time. So <laughs> I think Conde herself has described translation as a kind of necessary evil <laughs> and that it's, yeah. you, you can't get around it. And, and, and I do think there, there are gains to it. Um, the loss is, is, I would think of loss is more in terms of kind of a general power dynamic too. Who gets translated? Who doesn't? What languages get translated? So how many how many French texts get translated into English versus American literature that gets translated into other languages? Yeah. So what I think here too, the question of canon and value, the more powerful are going to be translated into other people's languages and the, the less powerful or less likely to have their voices translated and brought into that conversation. So when I think about, yeah, gains and losses, I think of it on that kind of structural level too. What is the the business of translation and, and the power dynamics of translation? Yeah, mm -hmm. well, and I don't, this might, the, uh, in the, the Bell Creole, the Creole uh, words in a glossary in the back, mm -hmm. was that your decision or was that an editor's decision? That was a kind of a, a conversation with the editors. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I initially was kind of interested in not have, there isn't a glossary in the original. So I was interested oh. in, in just letting the, the words sit and um, having readers kind of puzzle over them. Because I think a lot of the words are, 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 you can kind of puzzle out the general meaning in context, not all of the terms, but um, but uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, more experienced editors 
thought that, that it might be, I, of course, I'm more familiar with it, so it might be easier for me to puzzle out the meetings than, than a reader who's not, uh, who, who, who doesn't read any French at all. So, um, so the, the Anglophone reader's experience of the Creole is going to be different from um, a French reader's a non-creolophone French reader's experience of the Creole because there's some residents, there's, it's, you, there's some things you can piece together and others that you can't. So, and Conde herself was kind of agnostic about it. She says, well, if, you know, <laughs> it's, she's, she's not completely anti-glossary. So I thought it was okay to go. With yeah. It. <laughs> it was, it was surprising because it was like with the Creolist movement, that sense of unaccommodating. And I mm. thought that was yeah, a yeah. good, that was a good way of, walking the line because <laughs> this is my first thing I've ever read from Conde just mm -hmm. toss of the coin and the first chapter <laughs> I was like what are these words and, uh, <laughs> like I was like yeah. so scared I was missing something and I googled it once or twice and then I remember I just looked in the bag and I was like oh it's there in the glossary <laughs> yeah, yeah but also I felt there was there's meaning in being confusing what those words mean too as a mm -hmm. reader you know there's a little bit of a journey there I, yeah yeah so no uh, i think that that's I, lo I love hearing your reactions and that yeah having a glossary at the back i mean you uh, it, it gives you the option of you know it, it makes you sit with it for a little bit and then um then you have a resource that you can turn to but you have to actively flip to it too so you're still you're actively engaging with that with that text yeah, yeah. earning it employing yeah. It, right? <laughs> yeah yeah um Cool. Uh, we have a uh, one more student question in, and then mm -hmm. we'll uh, we'll move on to rolling out. Uh, do you have it? Who's who's the next one? Yeah, yeah. Um, the next one, uh, Maria. She asks, "What is your favorite Maurice Conde literary piece?" Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's a really hard question. <laughs> I I think about this question sometimes. I think sometimes it depends on the the day. Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm so close to the Bell Creole that <laughs> that that one has always fascinated me. But I think um, I would probably say either Crossing the Mangrove, which was one of the first books that I read. Um, and I think it's because it's one of the first, and it's also so well crafted. That one, I I'm really fond of that one. But I also really love um, Conde's memoirs, um, which in English they're called Tales from the Heart. Mm -hmm. um, they're I mean, it's a very different kind of piece from her novels, and um, and I, I highly recommend that. Um, so they're autobiographical tales from her childhood that are really infused with with melancholy and sadness and yearning. So um, that that and and they're also very tightly crafted too. So um, it's hard to pick between those two, but I would I would say. Um, Right now, at this moment in time, this is <laughs> what my answer would be. Nice. Of course, that is very understandable. It's so hard to choose whenever yeah, you love someone yeah. so much. <laughs> All right. Well, we uh, kind of just have one more final question for you, and it's, mm -hmm. are you currently working on anything to be released? Oh, I'm working on a new research project. Um, the, the working title is Alchemies of Blood, and I'm looking at um, kind of the resurgence of of biological racism or kind of discourses around races located in the body and how Afro-diasporic writers have responded to that notion with uh, kind of alternative ideas about the body and kinship and, and relation. So, but that, that's in progress. So it won't be, it won't be out <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. Well, we look forward to it. Um, and uh, that's it, hey? No yeah. more questions. We dug through it all. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, 
everybody that was miss rsa doctor let me get it right hey Dr. <laughs> uh is this help me with the pronunciation because she tried to she told me and i no yes. you got it you got it it's simic yeah thanks Simic. so much it was uh, it was such an honor to be invited i really enjoyed yeah. talking with you both yeah thank you um again like we said this is uh the bell creole um this was her translated work of miss maurice conde um and then we have this book straight from the library. It's her uh, bit of her criticism with her classmates at Princeton. Is that correct? When you were yes, there getting right. your doctorate, um, feasting on words. And uh, she also has another publication that was is available here on uh, electronic library with Sims Library. And uh, we really implore you to check her out more. Check out Conde. I'm becoming an advocate myself. I will never be like Dr. Simek, but uh, I'd have to learn French first. Correct? Yes. <laughs> but uh, we want to shout out real quick. Thank you to Dr. Zebra Rashidian. She's the one who really exposed us to this. Dr. Hansen, the department head. Um, Dr. Landrum with the Writing Center. Um, and uh, we want to thank Dr. Saporsky over there in the ceramics uh, department hecking us up. That has a Creole vibe to it, if I were to think what Louisiana <laughs> would have. But uh, anyway, um, thank you all for joining us with the Iconic Cast. I'm Tyler. This is Kendall, Caleb on Tech. And uh, next Monday, we will be with uh, Dr. Mariana Kuno, who is in the department for our world and foreign language. Um, she's an ethnobotanist. She had a Mayan medicine uh, publication about... 15 years ago. So we'll be digging into the ethnography of that uh, next Monday. But that was Dr. Nicole Simek here on the uh, Iconicast. And uh, we look forward to seeing y'all next time. Be good. Thank you.